indeed, it's the book of all books. It's God's book because we're about to hear the living God speak to us through his living word. And indeed, while we might think that we are reading God's word, the Bible itself says that it is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, able to divide between joints and marrow, soul and spirit. And that means, friends, that God's word is reading us. So I'm going to read from Jonah chapter 1, from verse 1 through to verse 17. And this is the word of the Lord. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai. Go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it, because its wickedness has come up before me. But Jonah ran away from the Lord and headed for Tarshish. He went down to Joppa, where he found a ship bound for that port. After paying the fare, he went aboard and sailed for Tarshish to flee from the Lord. Then the Lord sent a great wind on the sea, and such a violent storm arose that the ship threatened to break up. All the sailors were afraid, and each cried out to his own God. And they threw the cargo into the sea to lighten the ship. But Jonah had gone below deck, where he lay down and fell into a deep sleep. The captain went to him and said, How can you sleep? Get up and call on your God. Maybe he will take notice of us and we will not perish. Then the sailors said to each other, Come, let us cast lots to find out who is responsible for this calamity. They cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. So they asked him, Tell us, who is responsible for making all this trouble for us? What do you do? Where do you come from? What is your country? From what people are you? He answered, I am a Hebrew and I worship the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the earth. This terrified them and they asked, What have you done? They knew he was running away from the Lord because he had already told them so. The sea was getting rougher and rougher. So they asked him, What should we do to you to make the sea calm down for us? Pick me up and throw me into the sea, he said, he replied, and it will become calm. I know that it is my fault that this great storm has come upon you. Instead, the men did their best to row back to land, but they could not, for the sea grew even wilder than before. 
Then they cried out to the Lord. O Lord, please do not let us die for taking this man's life. Do not hold us accountable for killing an innocent man. For you, O Lord, have done as you pleased. Then they took Jonah and threw him overboard. And the raging sea grew calm. At this, the men greatly feared the Lord. And they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows to him. But the Lord provided a great fish to swallow Jonah. And Jonah was inside the fish three days and three nights. Let's pray. Lord, as we come before you this morning and as we sit at your feet, it is with great excitement because we come together today, Lord, to worship you, the true and living God, the one who made the land and the sea, the one who is in sovereign control over everything that happens in this earth, whether it be prosperity or pandemics. All things are in your hands. Lord, as we come before you this morning, we ask that you would open our ears to hear your voice speaking to us through your word. You would give us minds that understand and discern and you would give us hearts that believe and obey. Lord, we commit this time into your hands now and we ask for your blessing. For we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. The book of Jonah almost needs no introduction. That's because not only is it probably the most popular, but also one of the most well-known books in the Bible, and in particular, the Old Testament. Children especially love the story of Jonah being swallowed by this enormous fish. And the whole theme of running away from God only to be later found by him resonates with people from every nation and every time period. But unfortunately, the message of Jonah can easily be lost because we fail to consider what it meant in its original context. It's a bit like the meaning behind so many well-known nursery rhymes. Parents and grandparents often sing them to their, or fondly to their children, especially before they go to sleep at night. But if you know the original meaning of them, you'll realise that they are often very morbid and even political. Take, for example, Ring-a-Ring-a-Rosie. As you all know, the central part of it goes, Ring-a-Ring-a-Rosie, a pocket full of posies, a tissue, a tissue, we all fall down. 
My own daughter used to sing this to my son Tom as a uh, bit of a game slash dance on the trampoline in our backyard. And it ended with them both falling down laughing. But historically, a ring of roses referred to the red rash that someone developed when they first got sick and was a sign of the plague. A pocket full of posies referred to the flowers people kept in their pocket to ward off the disease because it was thought that plagues were transmitted through quote-unquote bad air. Saying a tissue, a tissue referred to obviously then the first signs of getting sick and sneezing. And the phrase, we all fall down? Well, sadly, pandemics such as the bubonic plague often took large swathes of the population. Many, many people died. So we all fall down is a reference to everybody keeling over dead. Now, just imagine if we sang a similar kind of nursery rhyme today during COVID. Nearly everyone would consider it not only being highly inappropriate, even though the death rate isn't um, quite so high. We'll take another well-known example. Mary, Mary, quite contrary. How does your garden grow? With silver bells and cockle shells, all pretty maids in a row. I don't know about you, but I always found this particular nursery rhyme uh, well, a bit quaint, and maybe because I was a boy, a little bit too feminine. It reminded me of Mary Had a Little Lamb and of dainty backyard gardens with flowers and pretty-sounding trinkets. But it was, in its original context, actually referring to the complete opposite. The Mary of the rhyme was Mary, Queen of Scots, someone who was so brutal in persecuting Protestants at the time of the Reformation that she was historically referred to as Bloody Mary. So when the song says that she was quite contrary, it was actually a reference to just how vicious this particular monarch was. Mary was not very ladylike at all. And the reference to her garden was not to flowers or to vegetables, but to her cemetery. How does her garden grow? Well, it's a graveyard full of dead bodies. And how did she grow this so-called garden? Well, with silver bells and cockle shells, that is, with instruments of torture. And finally, the reference to all pretty maids in a row is a slang or colloquial way of referring to those who had been beheaded. The guillotine was referred to historically as the maiden. And so those who visited the maiden were actually referred to as maids. So when you sing all pretty maids in a row, you're actually referring in its historical context to a line of decapitated heads. Now, I told you these songs were morbid. All the grandparents right now are going, oh! 
But the same kind of misunderstanding happens with the book of Jonah. People forget what was going on in the nation of Israel when Jonah was alive. Now, if you open your corner post, you'll see that there's an insert that Libby, so um, very well put together, and you'll see it's a timeline of the Old Testament. Libby's done a great service to us all by producing something I came up with as a great bookmark. You might like to keep this in your Bibles. It gives you a really good reference quickly to know where you are when you're reading particularly the 12 minor prophets. They're only minor not because of what their message is, but because of the length of the books. There's minor prophets, there's 12 of them, you'll see them there. And then there's the major prophets of Jeremiah, Isaiah and Ezekiel. And they're roughly around the same time. Notice that in particular, Jonah was serving during the time before God's people of the northern kingdom of Israel. North is Israel. The southern kingdom is referred to as Judah. The northern kingdom were just about to be kicked out of the promised land. And notice this, and never to return. For years, God had been sending his prophets, including the major prophet of Isaiah, whose ministry um, extended for over 40 years, to warn his people of coming judgment. That the vine of Israel was about to be uprooted and destroyed. And why that image is so important, we'll come to in a couple of weeks. The northern kingdom of Israel, or for the northern kingdom of Israel, notice what nation is in charge at this particular period of time. The nation that God's prophets continually warned them was going to take them into Israel, oh sorry, into exile, was the nation of Assyria. Everyone knew this, especially Jonah. And you can read all about it also in Hosea, as well as Isaiah, who were Jonah's contemporaries. But here's the problem. The people of Israel refused to repent. They refused to turn away from their idols and to worship the Lord. They continued to offer sacrifices to pagan gods on the high places. They themselves continued to worship idols and engage in all kinds of moral and spiritual rebellion. But then the Lord makes the decision to call Jonah to go to not just any old town, but specifically to Nineveh. And you've got to ask yourself, why is that so important? Why Nineveh? Well, because Nineveh was the capital city of Assyria. So if you know the historical context regarding what is taking place in Israel, then immediately you'll understand what the implications of Jonah's call to go to Nineveh are. The Lord is sending his prophet to the nations. And while his own people won't repent or turn back to him, there's a high likelihood that a pagan nation, such as the Ninevites, actually will. In fact, at the end of the book, 
That's precisely what Jonah says. When a spiritual revival occurs and the entire city of Nineveh turns to God, Jonah says this, Oh Lord, is this not what I said was going to happen when, we, when I was still at home? Wait, what? Why isn't Jonah happy? More people are worshipping the Lord. Why isn't he rejoicing at the display of God's sovereign power to save by turning sinful human hearts to him? Because Jonah knows that their salvation will mean the judgment of his own people. The nations will repent while Israel will not. We'll see this in a couple of weeks, but Jonah gives them a five-word sermon. It's about seven or eight words in English, but in Hebrew it's five. Forty more days and Nineveh will be overturned. Doesn't mention God. Doesn't mention forgiveness. But they all, from the highest to the least, repent. I've had longer sermon titles than that. So what does Jonah do? Well, verses 3 to 5, as we all know, Jonah rebels. He travels in the complete opposite direction and he catches the first boat out of town. It's almost funny when you think about it because how can you really run away from God? Uh, my oldest son, John, uh, Josh, when he was little, he loved uh, touching the buttons on the TV. It used to drive Angie and I nuts. Uh, there were these, um, those were the days where you could change, you know, the buttons manually for stations, uh, as well as the volume and things like that. We had one of these old TVs that was on the side by then. Anyway, in the middle of a show, Josh would just get up and he would start pressing buttons. And I said to him quite sternly one day, I said, now Josh, I don't want you to touch the buttons on the TV. And he knew I was serious, and so he stopped. What he was doing, about to press him, he stood perfectly still. And then he started to slowly turn around in a great big circle. Took his time, and then he went right back to pressing the button again. It was funny because Angie and I were sitting on the couch. We hadn't moved. We were sitting there the whole time. But from Josh's perspective, the world had changed. He thought he'd completely fooled us. You know, how often, in all seriousness, how often do we try to do to God the same thing? We know that something that we're doing or that we're pursuing is not pleasing to him. And yet we do this great big circle. And we think that after a while, God would have forgotten. That God wouldn't have seen this. That maybe God got distracted and was doing something else. And the whole time he's sitting there and goes, I haven't moved. The God of all creation is watching down from heaven and he is seeing everything. As a result of Jonah's disobedience, the Lord sends a great wind 
And this storm is so violent that it threatens the life and well-being of everyone on the ship. We tend to minimise the danger of the ocean today, but for most of human history, this was the primary mode of transport to get from one nation to another. And as anyone who has been or has sailed in the open water will tell you, a storm at sea can be one of the most terrifying things that can happen uh, to a person or that you can go through. I'm sure most of us would remember the horrible events of the Sydney to Hobart in 1998. 55 sailors had to be rescued and it was the largest peacetime search and rescue ever in Australia. What was Jonah's response though? Well, we're told in the second half of verse 5 that he went down below deck and he lay down and he fell into a deep sleep. Now, I initially thought that Jonah was simply expressing his confidence in the Lord. But there's a whole lot more going on here than that, isn't there? For starters, while God literally tells Jonah to arise and go to Nineveh, Jonah goes down into the depths of the ship. So the Lord's prophet is continuing to rebel against what he has been called to do. But even more significantly, Jonah's response to the storm has some striking parallels, doesn't it, to what we read, Jesus, how Jesus responds to the storm in Mark chapter 4. On both occasions, the, the fishermen exclaim, these are seasoned, hardened men of the sea, don't you care if we drown? Now, from a literary perspective, the response of both Jonah and Jesus acts as a contrast to those around them. On both occasions, yes, Jonah and Jesus are asleep. Yes, it both ends with a miraculous calming of the storm. But once again, the conversation that Jonah has with the sailors is almost comical, isn't it? Because we know how powerless their own gods are to save them. How can you sleep? The sailors ask Jonah, get up and call on your God. Maybe we've missed one. Maybe he will take note of us, notice of us, and we will not perish. The Lord has been noticing what Jonah has been doing even before he was called. He might have been trying to do this great big circle around the TV of God's will, but the Lord continued to remain in total control. And the casting of lots simply proves it. Some people scoff at such a random method of discerning who's at fault. I mean, they say, imagine leaving something as serious as this to the outcome of something like the throw of a pair of dice. But as God's word says in Proverbs, Proverbs, if you're taking notes, Proverbs 16.33, Proverbs 16.33, the lot is cast into the lap, but it's every decision is from the Lord. Or Proverbs 18.18, casting the lot settles disputes and keeps strong opponents apart. 
You see, nothing ever happens outside the sovereign will of God, of our loving Heavenly Father. Not a sparrow that falls from the sky, not a lot that is cast on the table. The response of the sailors, though, is once again almost comical, if it wasn't so serious. After the lots of cast, they say to Jonah, Who are you? What have you done that would make this all-powerful being do this to us? What, have you, what could you have possibly done that would result in such a horrendous event? Now, these men have the spiritual sensibility, pagans though they are, to recognise that something was going on here which was of supernatural origin. Once again... Jonah's response is striking. Unlike them, he doesn't worship an idol which is representative of only one aspect of creation. No, Jonah worships the creator himself. The God who made the the earth and the sea. And in verse 10, It's simply by hearing this statement of faith that these pagan sailors are filled with terror. For Jonah had already shared with them as to how he has run away from the Lord. So stop and think about this. Even in his disobedience, even in his rebellion, God says, arise and go up to Nineveh. Jonah goes down and heads off to Tarshish. Even in the midst of all of that, Jonah is still bearing witness to the pagan nations around him. That's, or rather, how's that for the sovereign providence of God? It's Jonah's solution to their predicament, though, that makes them even more alarmed. Just take a look again at what he says in verse 12. Because Jonah says that the only way God's anger can be appeased is if his own life is sacrificed. In effect, it's the offering of his own blood to make atonement for his sin And so calm the raging sea, if we can put this in theological language. Verse 12, pick me up and throw me into the sea and it will become calm. I know that it is my fault that this great storm has come upon you. Now, once again, the response of the sailors is really surprising. Because rather than immediately do what Jonah suggests, you know, like as a response of superstitious dread, they do the complete opposite. They try to do all that they can to row back to land. In other words, they try to resolve this situation through the strength of their own good works. This is precisely the way Everybody by nature thinks is the way to be saved, isn't it? If only I try harder. 
If only I perform more good works. If only I come to church more regularly and on time. If only I consecrate myself more fully to obeying God's law. That's the philosophy of every religion on earth, friends. Every single one except biblical Christianity. For all the religions of earth are based on what you do. Only Christianity is based on what Jesus has done. We are the only religion on earth that as its central symbol has the one whom we worship suffering for us. Do and done. That is the, the crucial difference between trying to earn your own salvation by works versus receiving the victory that Jesus has won. Do you see? What happens to Jonah is a powerful illustration in this regard. Even as a rebellious prophet. You see, despite his disobedience, the Lord God Almighty continues to glorify his name. And in this particular instance, as soon as Jonah is thrown into the sea, it immediately becomes calm. Supernatural origin, supernatural solution. Normally when there's a storm, it takes a while for a storm to subside and the swell, as we all know, goes on for days. But in this instance, the sea immediately becomes calm. The sailors in Jesus' day recognised the same thing when he calmed the storm with a word. What's their response? Who is this? Even the wind and the waves obey what he says. God's anger is turned away and the lives of the men on the ship is gra are graciously saved. And I think not just in a temporal sense either. Just take a look again at what happened next in verse 16. Jonah had been running away from calling on a Gentile nation to repent. And yet despite his disobedience, the Lord continues to orchestrate events so that Gentiles are brought to repentance. To turn from their sin and to put their trust in him. Verse 16, at this, the men greatly feared the Lord and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows to him. What does it say in Psalm 130, 39? Where can I go? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up into the heavens, you are there. If I go down into the depths of the sea, you are also there. No one can escape God's sovereign purposes and will. Through the Lord sending a great wind, these Gentile sailors end up greatly fearing the Lord. How incredible is that? It makes you want to exclaim, as the Apostle Paul does in Romans 11, if you truly see what's going on here, oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and the knowledge of God, how unsearchable his judgments and his paths beyond tracing out, who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counsellor? Who has ever given to God that God should repay him? 
For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. All of which brings you to, or us, to this momentous event of verse 17. It's what I refer to as Jonah's death and deliverance. Now, some people have a problem with what the Bible is saying here. Or, or, sorry, is what the Bible says took place here. They say something like, come on, surely Jonah wasn't really swallowed by a whale, was he? Such a thing would just be too extraordinary and even miraculous. But events like this not only have occasionally occurred and so are not beyond the realms of possibility, if you believe in the God who made the heaven or made the earth and the sea, well then something like this is not too difficult for him at all. In fact, isn't it precisely the very thing you would expect him to do? You've got to be careful when you start questioning the truth of the Bible because it's the irrationality of your own unbelief that is the thing which can be ultimately exposed. Just a word of warning. Graham Goldsworthy who was one of my lecturers at Moore College many years ago, used to tell the story of one particular theologian who once challenged him regarding the truth about the crossing of the Red Sea. Surely you don't believe that Moses, by the power of God, literally parted the waters so that the Israelites went through on dry ground, do you? Graham said, actually, I do. But don't you realise, he went on to say, that they were just really fortunate to cross at that particular point of time because the the water was really low. It happens naturally from time to time so that there's only actually two inches of water. To which Graham responded, well, praise God, that's even more miraculous because God drowned the entire Egyptian army in two inches of water. A careful reading of the scriptures will tell you just how accurate it is on that event, friends. Because not only did God part the waters, but if you read carefully of what happens in the book of Exodus, it says he sent a great wind throughout the night so that they didn't just part the waters and go through the sea, but they crossed on dry ground. Even if it was two inches of water, a million or so people crossing over would have been a muddy slush. They wouldn't have gotten through. Now, there is an even greater reason, though, why you should believe that what the Bible says happened to Jonah actually took place. And that is, I'm going to tell you something even greater than what happened to Jonah. And that's because of what happened to Jesus. Our Lord was in the belly of the earth for three days and three nights. Do you believe that? Not because he deserved it, but because he was absorbing the punishment for our sin and our rebellion for all of the times we had run away 
The death and resurrection of Jesus is the greatest event to happen in the history of the world. And in just a couple of weeks, we'll be celebrating, well, months really, but weeks, we'll be celebrating Easter where we celebrate the resurrection of Jesus. And can I say to you, friends, if the resurrection is not true, you should go bushwalking on a Sunday morning. Because we of all people are to be pitied. We have no hope. But if the resurrection of Jesus is true, like the Bible says, that changes everything. That gives you the answer to life because Jesus has defeated death. And the reason why it's so significant is because it's opened up for us the way to eternal life. An invitation that God is giving and extending to people from every tribe and every language and every nation. You see, ever since the death and resurrection, and I should also add ascension of Jesus, God the Father is sending labourers out into his harvest. Now, in just a few weeks, we're going to be witnessing the baptism of, well, now seven people from, originally from China and Taiwan. Could you imagine how encouraged we would all be if one of our missionaries wrote to us saying that seven people who they ministered to had been baptised last year? Could you imagine that? I think, I think most of us would conclude that a spiritual revival had broken out wherever they were ministering to. And yet, this is something that God is doing in our own backyard, right here in Hobart. The Lord is bringing the nations to us. I don't want to take away from the need to go, but the, the way that we can share the gospel now with people is just incredible. As I explained on the front of this week's Corner Post, all we have to do is say to them, Come and see. As I said at the beginning of the sermon, though, the message of the book of Jonah can be easily lost. We can become so inspired by what God is doing among the nations that we can forget that, first and foremostly, this was a word to Israel. This was a word to the people of God, which means that this is a word to you and me. If you turn over to Matthew chapter 16, I'll show you what I mean. You've probably read this passage a hundred times before, but I want you to take notice of the link which Jesus himself explicitly makes to the prophet Jonah. And I think you'll see that it functions as a rebuke to religious people, possibly like us, who claim to worship God. For we are now the Israel of God. Verse 1 of Matthew 16, we read, The Pharisees and the Sadducees came to Jesus and tested him by asking him to show them a sign from heaven. He replied, When evening comes, you say, It will be fair weather, for the sky is red. And in the morning, today it will be stormy, for the sky is red and overcast. You know how to interpret the appearance of the sky, but you cannot interpret the signs of the times. Notice what he says next. A wicked and adulterous generation 
looks for a miraculous sign, but none will be given it except the sign of Jonah. Jesus then left them and went away. My mum used to say growing up, red sky in the morning, shepherd's warning. Red sky at night, shepherd's delight. I don't think it matters where you are in the world. I think that saying is true wherever you are. If you see a red, orange sunset at night, then you can be pretty confident tomorrow's going to be a nice day. But if it's in the morning, then as a general rule, it's going to be the opposite. I say as a general rule because everyone knows here in Tasmania there are four seasons in a day. So there's got to be a degree of flexibility. But the point that Jesus is making is this. We know how to interpret the weather on earth, but how good are we at discerning heavenly signs? How good are you at discerning spiritual realities? You know, some people test God and they say they won't believe in Jesus unless he gives them a sign. Can I just say, be very careful about doing that because it's incredibly arrogant. As if the God who made the earth and the sea should, you, should do you a favour so that you might believe in him. But more to the point is this, Jesus has given you the greatest sign you and I could ever receive or need. He has done that and more. You know what that sign is? He's died and then come back from the dead. That as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a whale, so too the Son of Man, the Son of God, was three days and three nights in the belly of the earth. But here's the thing we mustn't miss. That's not just a sign of salvation. That's also a sign of judgment. Because for a wicked an adulterous generation or of religious people who trust in their own good works, who think that they can save themselves and row harder, who think that God must somehow come to their table and prove, themse- prove himself to them before they will do him the favour of believing. The death and resurrection of Jesus is the sign that only God can save. And he will not bend to you. He's calling on you to bend to him. For just as only the Lord could rescue someone from the belly of a fish, only God could bring someone back from the dead. And I know it's not the cleverest message you've ever heard. I know some people say, well, it's not the most powerful message I've ever heard. But that's the way God has chosen to save. The weakness of God, the foolishness of God, joined together becomes the wisdom of God in the cross. 
Because you see, on both occasions, for Jonah and for Jesus, in the whale and in the tomb, the anger of God's wrath has been turned away from you and me who believe. His judgment has literally passed over us. With Jonah, it was when he was thrown into the sea, but with Jesus, it was when he was crucified on a Roman cross. Who would have thought that's the way God would choose to save? For it was there, and can I say this, only there, that the penalty of sin is paid for. Where he took the punishment upon himself, which we deserve. Now, can I say, particularly if you're visiting with, with us this morning, have you put your trust in the death and resurrection of Jesus? Or are you like those pagan sailors trying to row harder? Today is the day where the Spirit calls on you to humble yourself and to trust in Jesus. To like those sailors, turn to him and follow him. Trusting in not what you do, but what in Jesus has done. Don't be like the Pharisees or the Sadducees who kept on demanding from God a sign for he's given you the only evidence you'll ever need. If you have trusted in Jesus though, are you living your life fully for him? Having received his mercy and forgiveness, are you doing really what he asks? Or have you possibly become distracted by the things of this world? You might have not, quote unquote, done a Jonah and run away in the opposite direction. Or maybe you have. But have you perhaps slowly drifted away from his purposes? Do you know how the great C.S. Lewis described this experience? He called God the great hound of heaven who chased him down the labyrinth of his days till he became the most reluctant convert in all of England. But even for Christians, there's a sense, isn't there, in which we need to return to give ourselves fully to the work of the Lord because we know that our labour in the Lord is not in vain. There's a sense, isn't there, friends, where we can get distracted by houses, by holidays, by, as John Piper says, collecting shells. Can I say, we need to make church again a priority this year. To not only being here early on a Sunday, but by seeking to bless those around you. Angie and I, when we used to come to church, we... We used to have to walk to church when we were first married and it was wonderful. Not only did we have a chance to talk with one another for about 15 or 20 minutes, but we would pray every Sunday morning and we would pray for the opportunities of who we would talk to to encourage that morning at church. I wasn't necessarily preaching or serving up front in any way with music or chairing, children's talks, but we would always pray, Lord, open our eyes that we would see who you want us to encourage. And I can tell you, friends, that trip home every Sunday after church was some of the most special times in our marriage where we said, look at what God did for us. I had this opportunity to open and carry someone's burden or share someone's load. 
hear someone's heart, can I plead with you to take that simple opportunity to do the same? Come early, stay late. Seek out intentionally opportunities on how you might minister to one another and be amazed at what the sovereign Lord, the one who made earth and sea, will do. Let's pray. Our Lord and Heavenly Father, we want to thank you and praise you that you have spoken to us through your word this morning. In all the busyness of the week, Lord, how good it is to worship you, the true and living God. All other gods are but man-made inventions and idols. Lord, how good is it to sit at your feet and to be fed on your word. Your word is as sweet as honey. And it feeds us, Lord. It satisfies. We want to pray for each other, Lord, that you will spur us on to love and good deeds. That you will give us kingdom eyes. That see and recognise those opportunities to bless and minister to one another. Do that amongst us, please, Lord. Give us hearts that are eager to carry one another's load to share one another's burden and to lift one another up. And Father, we pray also that you will grant us the courage to not be ashamed of you or your word. When we see people that don't believe and when we interact, may we not be ashamed to say where we have been this morning, that we have been at church and we have met with the living God and his people. Lord, give us courage to not only say where we have been, but to invite and tell them where they can come. That they can come and see for themselves and taste and see that the Lord is good and that the Lord is mighty to save. Thank you for hearing us, Lord. Thank you for blessing us. Thank you for loving us. And most of all, thank you for saving us. For we pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen.